isn't it great to be with God's people? It's so good, good to see. It, it was great to be here last Sunday, and even with the smaller crowd, that God was here. God was here, but it's, it's, kind of great, it's kind of great to see some of the spots kind of filled in, but I, I think there's still probably a few more uh, that, that might be here next week. That'd be okay, right? So anyway, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark Collum. I serve as a teaching pastor here at First Open Bible, and I'm honored to do so, and just want to say welcome to First Open Bible, and uh, those of you who might be joining us online, there might be a few of you today. We're glad you're here, but how many of you who are here know that even if you've experienced both online and in person, is it better to be here in person? Yeah. Same God, same God. He's just as much in your home as he is here. There's no question about that. But there's just something about being with the people of God. There's a dynamic that you just cannot replace. With you sitting in your fluffy bathrobe and your bowl of Cheerios and... Uh, because God is present where, wherever we are. Where, where can I go without his love following me and, and haunting me? Huh? I, I, can take, I can take a submarine to Atlantis. I can catch a flying saucer to Mars. I can go someplace nobody's ever been, but I bet you God's already been there. Huh? Huh? He's there. He is there. He's with us everywhere. But there's something special just about being with God's people that you can't get anywhere else. You just can't get it. Okay? God bless. God bless us that we have this wonderful facility to come to. Aren't you glad it's warm in here today? Huh? I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad those boilers are cranking. I'm glad when I pull up and I look up on the roof and I see steam coming out of there, I'm going, praise the Lord. I'm not going to have to worry about wearing my coat during church. Now, some of you are just cold-blooded anyway, right? Huh? And you're going to sit there in your, your coat the whole, the whole service because you're just cold-blooded. But God is here. God is here. And because he's here, he wants to minister to you and me. Aren't, aren't you... That the God of the universe is taking time to be here with us. What did we ever do to deserve that? But yet, he's here. He is here. Amen. Thank you for being here. Thanks to our worship team. Thanks to our tech team. Thanks to our, uh, our kids ministry team. Thanks to our safety team. Thanks to our greeters team. And whatever team you're on that you serve us here, we're so grateful for you. And uh, we appreciate your faithfulness to minister to us in all of these ways. And uh, we're grateful for the talents that you share with us here at the church. Well, if you recall in the uh, uh, last couple of messages in our series, how many of you know the name of the series? Reset. Well, that's part of it. What's the subtitle? Winning the war in our mind. Okay. If you've been here the last couple of weeks or if you've watched online or if you've uh, visited the messages uh, uh, since then, uh, you'll know and uh, be reminded Pastor Harris has shared with us some, some really important uh, uh, things about our thought life. Uh, that are absolutely crucial. One of the things that, that has stuck with me over the last couple of weeks is he made mention of this. It's not just what we think about, but how we think about what we think about. That is just as important as the content. It's how we frame it. It's how we see things. It's how we perceive things. He noted that our brains which, by the way, aren't identical with our minds because the mind has certain characteristics that the brain doesn't. But, but, but the brain is where the mind does its stuff, okay? That our brains have a tendency to form certain neural pathways as we think about the same things over and over and as we think about those things in the same way over and over. 
It's not just the content that can be the same and reinforced. It's how we view the content and how we think about it that can be reinforced over time. How many of you found this to be true? I think it's a truism that seems to pertain to every human being I've ever met. We tend to see what we want to see. We tend to see what we want to see, and we tend to see what we expect to see. If you don't want to see something, probably you won't. If you don't expect to see something, you probably won't. Why? Because we have developed these ways of thinking that only allow us to think within a certain range of thought. And we can't sometimes, it's tough to get out of that framework and see things from a bigger, broader perspective. It seems clear that without some sort of reorientation of our thinking, we seem to be locked into a particular pattern of perceptions, a framework through which we see and interpret the world that we live in and as it confronts us, and by which we then navigate, or at least attempt to navigate, our way through life. How many of you found that sometimes what we see doesn't exactly correspond to what's actually there? It's a little more difficult these ways to navigate your, your way around on the roadways. How many of you know that to be the case? Especially as you pull up two corners, it's a little more difficult to see, right? But even on the clearest of days, without an ounce of snow on the ground... How many of this has happened to you? You pull up because you're a cautious and uh, a very attentive driver. You pull up to a crossroads and you have your hands at 2 and 10. 2 o'clock and 10 o'clock on the wheel, just like you were told in driver's education, right? Okay? And you very cautiously turn your directional signal on. You've also made sure that your blinker fluid is on full, right? <laughs> And you look to the left, and you look to the right. And because you're a great driver, you look to the left again, right? And based upon what you see or don't see, you let your foot off the brake pedal, slide it over to the accelerator, and proceed on your way. How many of you have ever found that the minute you're about taking your foot off the brake, Boom! This gigantic vehicle just materialized out of nowhere at that precise moment in time, and you slammed on the brakes, and you said to yourself, where did that come from? Hmm? Newsflash, it was there all the time. I'm glad I have this visual apparatus, but how many of you sometimes it doesn't work at 100% capacity all the time? We miss things. Sometimes because we're just not attentive. But in some cases, it's because we don't want to see certain things. Thankfully, our minds have the capacity sometimes to compensate uh, for certain conditions uh, in our lives. Sometimes, how many of you like uh, optical illusions? Huh? And you always got these really clever people that take pictures uh, and, and they post them uh, on, on the internet. Here's, here's one. Here's one particular picture. Isn't that amazing? That lady is as tall as the Eiffel Tower. Isn't that crazy? Have you ever seen a woman that tall before? Huh? So tall, so tall, she can put her finger like right on the top of the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower is over a thousand feet tall. And yet this woman is able to do that. Now, if I say to you, what do you see? You say, well, I see a woman with the Eiffel Tower way back down the road, and they've arranged the picture so much. But what you actually see is a very, very tall woman. 
and a very, very short Eiffel Tower. But our minds have the ability to compensate and to make adjustments for uh, depth and perceptions and things like that. Our minds have that ability to do it. This is an easy one. But sometimes things aren't always as they appear. Sometimes we see things and we're not quite sure what we're seeing. Now, often things are very much the way that they appear to us. What you see is what you get. How many of you heard that before? But whatever it is that you see is determined by your mental framework. Today, I want to talk about how can we adjust our mental framework. Someone once said, life is a series of course corrections. We move in this direction for a while, and sooner or later, we're going to have to make an adjustment because the way is going to be blocked. Or certain circumstances will arise that will cause us to have to move in a different direction. Life is a series of course corrections. But we all have a certain mental framework within which we have to navigate that life. Now, we might call this mental framework a worldview. A worldview. Now, before I define it, I just want to uh, assure you, you have a worldview. You just have one. So do I. So does every other thinking human being. We may not be able to articulate it well, but we have one. Well, here's what a worldview is. It's simply this. A worldview is an intellectual framework by which a person organizes and interprets his or her experience. A worldview is a set of beliefs, values, and presuppositions concerning life's most fundamental issues. Make no mistake, you have a worldview. Certain components of that worldview might be things like this, as was mentioned by Brent earlier. Is there a God? How you view the world and make decisions in this life can be lar- in, in large part will be determined by how you answer that question. Some worldviews affirm that there is a God or multiple gods. Some worldviews, uh, eh, it doesn't really matter if there is a God or they just dismiss the notion of any sort of uh, higher power altogether. What's the really real? What's the nature of reality? How many of you ever took physics? Okay, three of us took physics. And uh, <laughs> what is the fundamental nature of reality? What's the fundamental fundamental nature of physical reality? As you keep peeling back the layers of things, what do you get to? Atoms. Oh, and then you can peel off the atoms a little bit more, right? You've got electrons and protons and neutrons. Okay, what are they made of? We don't know. Quarks. That was one possibility. Yeah. We don't know, but it seems that some place you get to a bottom line and you can't divide things any further. What is that reality? Is it just a physical reality or is there some sort of non-physical reality? Maybe we could call it a spiritual reality. One thing that we're keenly interested in is what makes human beings human? That's not an easy question to answer. Are we just these physical carbon-based units? Physical beings? Or is there some sort of non-physical component to our makeup? Now, from the standpoint of Christianity, we would say human beings are creatures made in the image of God. Not just the product of a long series of evolutionary steps and how we answer some of those questions will determine how we develop a set of values by the way you have a set of values too 
You find certain things beautiful. You find certain things ugly. The person next to you might find the exact opposite. Huh? Go to an art gallery. And you're going, who in the world finds this pleasing to the eye? Those are your values asserting themselves. Oh, and oh my goodness. How many of you are glad that the television commercials have returned to normal and we don't have to hear about uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and other... 24-7, seven days a week, 365. We have political values. We have economic values. We have all of these sorts of values. But most importantly, we have what we call ethical values or moral values. We find certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We find certain things are good and certain things are evil. And some of the most important moral values that we attempt to live by is how we treat each other. But you know, I want to say today, one of the most important ethical values and moral values that that we should consider is how do we treat ourselves? How do we view ourselves? How do we take care of ourselves to the best that God allows us to do so? So this moral uh, 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 or this worldview that that we have, it, it is simply this. It's how we view the world and everything in the world, including ourselves. On Wednesday night, uh, uh, Kay did a wonderful job sharing on, on Wednesday night about strongholds, and we'll get, get to that a little bit more in just a minute. Uh, the pastor has shared this passage of Scripture uh, in, in uh, the course of his messages as well, but we're going to revisit it today again. It's in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, uh, verses 3 through 5. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible uh, that's on page... Um, 968. Sorry, it should be 2 Corinthians. Thank you, though. And I'll just read it for you. By the way, uh, you could, uh, if you haven't already, uh, the sermon outline is on your is on you version. Some of you already got that pulled up. By the way, save that event, because if you don't, it'll disappear after service is over today. Okay? And you can follow along. This be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, verses 3 through 5, from the New Living Translation, which is the Bible that's in your pews, says, we are human. How about that? But we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. Verse 5, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. The English Standard Version puts it this way, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There are two ways of looking at things. We can look at them through our human eyes or we can look at them through God's eyes. But we need God's help to see through God's eyes. It doesn't come to us naturally. It doesn't. It doesn't. If it were up to me, man, I would cut some people right down to size. I've had it. I've had it. I don't know what you said, but I'm I'm sure it was cute. Um, 
I don't think I'm telling tales out of school, but uh, there was, uh, when I was much younger in our, our home church, one, I think it was a Sunday night service, there was a grandma had a couple of her grandkids with her, and boy, one grandkid just wouldn't stop, you know? That ever happened in church? Okay. <clears throat> so grandma picked up the son, or grandson, had him underneath her arm like a loaf of bread, and she's carrying him out the door. She had had it. And the whole time they're going out that, that door, he's saying, hey, let's talk, let's talk, let's talk, let's talk. <laughs> Grandma saw things from one perspective. Grandson saw them from another. Same set of facts but a different perception. No disagreement on the facts, but a different perception. A young man was making ready to move into a new house, and of course, uh, uh, Dad uh, happily volunteered to assist in, in the process. And as many of you have experienced when you're making ready to make a move, has anybody ever moved in your life? Uh, from one house to another? Too many times, yeah. I suspect that you've probably experienced that in the course of your packing up, you usually find an item or two or 372 that you forgot you even had. And or that you don't probably need any longer. As a result, this young man, he had assembled quite a, quite a pile of stuff at, uh, down by the curb at the end of his driveway. And so dad arrives to help. Now, just a little bit of background about dad. <clears throat> Dad's one of those guys that doesn't throw anything away. Do you know anything? Know anybody like that? Are you anybody like that? Yeah, some of, you, some of you right now are inwardly pointing to the person right next to you. <clears throat> you. You know who you are, so own it, okay? So dad looks at the pile of stuff sitting on the curb and he pulls out a piece of wood and he yells, Hey, what are you throwing away this chair for? All it needs is a back and four legs. Dad, it's a broken charcuterie board, but thanks. You can have it if you. Same piece of wood. One sees something broken to be thrown away. Another sees something that can be a dream chair. Same set of facts. Two different perspectives. They saw the exact same thing, but they saw it through Two different sets of lenses. Same facts, different interpretation. Same facts, different mental framework. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Literally. How did dad's perception get to be the way it was and the son's the way it was? What forms our mental framework? What formulates the way that we perceive things? Well, often it can be life's experiences. It can be where you grew up. It can be the family that you came from. It could be a whole host of things. Maybe, maybe you didn't have the greatest of childhoods. Maybe you had a parent who left. Maybe you suffered some sort of abuse. And maybe that has produced in you sort of a filter through which you see the world. And it makes, perhaps, it makes it hard for you to trust people. It's part of of your mental framework. You are always in a defensive posture. Why? Because of the things that you have experienced. 
You're always looking for ulterior motives. So this mental framework is people can't be trusted. I've heard stories of veterans. I'm not a veteran myself, but I've heard stories of veterans who have returned from combat and at least for a certain period of time and maybe for a lifetime. They feel guilty because they survived, but some of their fellow soldiers didn't make it home. And they feel guilty. And that shapes the way they view the world. I am undeserving. I should have perished with my platoon, but I didn't. And they mentally wrestle with all of these shapes and forms of sort of negative thoughts about themselves and their unworthiness. In all that I'll say today, I want to make clear this. God never, ever asks us to avoid or deny the facts. He never once asks us to avoid or deny the facts. The facts are what they are. And neither will he ever demand that we make light of the facts or dismiss the facts as unimportant. But what God does do and what he asks us to do and what he promises to help us to do is to filter those facts, or as Paul says, to take those thoughts captive and to make them obedient to Christ. That is, God asks us to look at the same facts through the lens of the light of Jesus Christ. So that we can see those facts in ways that are for our ultimate good. So what Sister Marilyn was talking about today. We're not going to read the entire two chapters in Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14. But the, the story is that the children of Israel are eventually uh, uh, released from bondage in Egypt. And they make their way to the promised land. And they're on the verge of entering into the promised land. Moses, like any good leader, he uh, puts together a, a 12-man reconnaissance team and he sends them into the land and asks them to assess the land and the relative strength of the inhabitants of the land. And so for a period of 40 days, off the reconnaissance team goes and they all see the same things. They all see the same things. The land was just as God had said. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a fruitful land. It was a land of abundance. And they also saw that there were a lot of people there too. Well, of the 12, 10 reported back, there be giants in the land. Nope, no way, no how are we going to be able to defeat these people. As a matter of fact, in their eyes and ours, we are little more than grasshoppers compared to them. They far exceed us in size and strength. It ain't happening, Moses. The other two, named Caleb and Joshua, they reported back and said, we are well able to take this land. What are we waiting for, Moses? Same set of facts, same observations, no disagreement about the facts. Two we're looking through the mental framework of God's promises. And 10, we're looking through the mental framework of human strength, or in this case, human weakness. Well, Joshua and Caleb, what a couple of morons. 
don't they know? Didn't they see the same? We saw the same thing. We saw the same people you did. We saw everything the same way. But we believe what God said. Now, maybe that sounds to you like just wishful thinking. A denial of the facts and substituting in its place simply delusional thinking. Many, many years ago, there was a book uh, written by a man by the name of uh, Norman Vincent Peale. It was called The Power of Positive Thinking. Eh, it was okay. Sometimes positive thinking can get us into trouble. Hmm? Positive thinking is good only so long as it includes God in the thinking. How many of you have ever been confronted with a decision? And uh, I suppose you, you are this way. I, I would be this way. Typically, I, wa I want to gather as much information as I possibly can. So that I can make an informed decision. Hmm? Usually the more information that we have, the better our decisions will be. In medicine, the idea is informed consent. That is, before I consent to have my abdomen sliced open by a surgeon, I need to be informed of all the potential effects. Because under normal circumstances, I probably wouldn't consent to that. There, might, there better be a good reason to have that done. But it's only when I have as much information as I can that I can evaluate whether or not such a slicing is worth it. If the benefits seem to outweigh the costs, I may give my consent. If the costs seem to outweigh the benefits, I may withhold my consent. But in it, Either case, I want as much information as I can to make that decision. But ultimately, we have to process all that information. And where does that take place? Right up there. God has equipped us with a rational apparatus, a mind with which to reason. And we best use it to the best of our abilities as God gives us grace to do so. Many years ago, I, I received a letter in the mail and it was addressed to Reverend Mark D. Cullum. It was the first piece of mail I ever got that said Reverend Mark D. Cullum. Inside was my minister's credentials. Well, I can see you're not nearly as thrilled about that as I was, but um, that was a big day. That was a big day. Not long after that, in addition to my Thompson Chain Reference King James Bible, I got a set of Bible commentary books written by a guy named Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry commentary of the whole Bible five volume set thank you very much some commentaries on the Bible are better than others but the more I've read Matthew Henry's is a pretty solid commentary now I mention this because I have access to all sorts of Bible commentaries I've got them on my phone Not all the time, but quite often. If I have my phone on during service, I might just access one of those Bible commentaries to see if that preacher person is... Hmm? Guess what I did Wednesday night, Kay? As I said, she shared in our adult discipleship gathering about the importance of demolishing strongholds and did a fabulous job. Uh, and her, what she shared, was based on the scripture passage from 2 Corinthians we shared this morning. 
So I just thought, I'm going to look and see what my Bible commentaries say about 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I wanted to think about, can I just say this? He mentioned that passage. I've mentioned that passage. You mentioned that passage. I think if God continues to lay this on everybody's heart, there's probably some good reason for this. Maybe he wants to say something to us from this particular passage of scripture. And by the way, I would encourage you to memorize it. Maybe it's that important. So I pulled up a couple of commentary notes on this passage from 2 Corinthians 10, hoping to see maybe what, what's the Greek word that Paul used there for, for strongholds and, uh, uh, and then to read the thoughts of others who had pondered on the same passage. And uh, Kay had listed seven important strongholds that sometimes paralyze Christians. Uh, 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 now, she didn't suggest that her list was complete. As a matter of fact, I think she might have mentioned that, oh, there are others as well. But th- this was a, a list that she had compiled. Here's what Matthew Henry said, commenting on verse 6 of of this passage in 2 Corinthians 10. He said this, what opposition is made against the gospel by the powers of sin and Satan in the hearts of men? In other words, he's saying, we can't hardly even measure the opposition that the enemy has against the gospel. He will do anything, anything to come against it. Ignorance, prejudices, beloved lust are Satan's strongholds in the souls of some, vain imaginations, carnal reasonings, and high thoughts and proud conceits in others, all which exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Did you catch the first stronghold he listed? Ignorance. Ignorance. There's nothing wrong with admitting that you don't know something. It's very easy to deal with that. If somebody asks you if you know something, you say, I don't know. That has two benefits. Number one, it's very short and concise and understandable. And number two, it's true. Okay? Short and true. I don't know is the best answer to give when I don't know. It's not a problem to acknowledge that at any particular moment, I'm not adequately equipped to think things through about that particular subject. But what I have found and what I will say to you, what is unacceptable is to run away from that fact and not doing what it takes to correct that ignorance. It's one thing to say, I don't know, but don't just sit there in your I don't know and stay there. In Matthew chapter 22, On page 820 in your pew Bible, Jesus replied, talking to people about what's the greatest commandment. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Matthew 22, verse 37. Verse 38 says, this is the first and greatest commandment. A second, he says in verse 39, is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. You want to know what God's desire is for you? The entirety of the scriptural teaching on the law and God's plan for how we are to live can be summed up in those two things. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Everything else is an extrapolation from that. Love God with all your mind why would Jesus point that out because it's important for us to love God with all our mind lots of people love Jesus with all their heart they love Jesus with all their soul but there's there's still a little work to do in loving him with all their mind 
God has equipped us the way that he has. He's given us a mind to think. And he expects us to make the most of it. Can I say to you that we can never, ever hope to win the battle of the mind if we stay in a state of perpetual ignorance? Because it's in a state of ignorance that we're liable to believe, follow, or embrace anything. The great British writer G.K. Chesterton once noted, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing, he believes anything. There are myriad angles at which we can fall, but there's only one by which we can stand straight up. Hmm? We need to know what God says and we need to believe what God says but have you noticed some people they don't mind staying in a state of ignorance they might even say something like this ignorance is bliss it might be blissful but it's also dangerous and ultimately it can be fatal some people are far too willing to ignore the facts when those facts are uh, inconvenient Leaving out facts leaves us in that unacceptable state of ignorance. The reconnaissance team. Can we go back to them for just a second? As I mentioned, all the physical facts were agreed upon. But there was some disagreement over the most important factor, and that factor is this. God promised. God said. God promised. God said. Two of the twelve factored God's promise to give the land into their hands. Ten either ignored God's promise, didn't really believe God's promise, or concluded that the external facts and circumstances outweighed God's promise. I don't see anything in the text of Numbers that indicates that the ten did not know what God had promised. I think they clearly did know what God had promised. In fact, if we stop and think about it, it was the mental framework that decided their recommendations. The recommendation of the ten left out facts. The recommendation of the two included facts. The, the worldview framework of the two included the firm belief that God is who he said he is, that he will do what he says he will do, and that he is well able to assist his people who put their trust in him and in his word. It was not that the two set aside facts. To the contrary, they employed a fuller, more complete set of facts, one of those facts being God promised and God said. They believed God's promise at least as much as they believed all the other facts. But the fact that God promised and God said provided them a different framework. And I would say a stronger framework within which to evaluate all the other facts. Well... Maybe through this month of January, it's just simply time for us to update our mental framework. Maybe it's been sitting on the shelf for a little while, and we just need to kind of pull it down, dust it off, and update it. Pastor Harris last week encouraged us to, when confronted with wrong thinking about our life and about our circumstances, in order to win the war of our minds, we must first and foundationally turn our focus to the word of God. To consider the word of God, to write it out, to think about it, and to do so until we actually believe it. You remember that? If you had your U version and saved that event, you could go back and see that. That is, to look at the very real facts of our lives through the filter and framework of the word of God. Unless and until we do that, 
we will never rightly see the world as God intends us to see it, and we can't live it the way God wants us to live it. A guy named the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, wrote 2 Corinthians, also wrote a, a letter to a, a group of churches in an area of Philippi, which was in uh, Greece, Asia Minor, that area. And uh, uh, this is called Philippians. It's in your New Testament, page uh, 983, if you've got your uh, uh, pew Bible. And it's part of a short collection of four books of the Bible uh, called the Prison Epistles. And I think Pastor had mentioned that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison okay the other three are Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and again they are labeled this prison epistles because that's where Paul wrote them uh, and sent them from and in the opening chapter of Philippians chapter 1 Paul writes in uh, verse 12 and 13 he says and I want you to know my dear brothers and sisters that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news where's Paul at He's in prison. Verse 13, for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. Now, prison conditions in Paul's day were significantly different than what they are today. And yet notice how Paul describes and frames and evaluates his situation. He could have described the miserable conditions, the lousy food, the coldness and dampness of the accommodations, and he would have been correct. Conditions were miserable. The food was lousy. It was damp, and it was cold. And we might have even understood if he would have wrote that, because we might have written something very similar were we in his shoes. He could have said something like this. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know how terrible things are here. I didn't sign up for any of this. Frankly, I've had it. I'm done. Y'all are on your own from now on. Sincerely, Paul. But he didn't. Instead, he reframed, he, he adjusted the framework of his mind to see things by considering all the facts, not just the physical facts of his circumstances, but he also noted that his, his imprisonment had helped him spread the gospel to everyone in the prison. Had he not been there, those people would have never heard the gospel, perhaps. Including all the prison guards. They all knew why he was there because he told them. They all heard the gospel because he told them. He said, this is the occasion by which God wanted to use me to spread the gospel. But it went even further than that. In verse 14, Paul goes on to say, and because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Come on. How many of you and I are more pro uh, prone to look at the negative things and ignore entirely the good things that God brings about by our circumstances. Exactly what you were talking about, Marilyn. Again, this isn't just some exercise in the power of positive thinking. Paul was not ignoring the facts of his situation. But I would suggest to you that he was exercising the power of right thinking. Shove aside the power of positive thinking. Engage in the power of right thinking. Right thinking takes into account all the facts. And one of those facts is what God said and what God promised. That should be at the top of every list of factors and bits of information when it comes to us deciding and evaluating the world in which we live. 
That is, Paul brought more facts to the table when describing his situation. Huh? That's all true, but this is true too. Well, how do we wrap it up today? Well, we wrap it up with a couple of scriptures and a couple of takeaways today. My Bible says in Psalm 37, verse 23, it's on page 467 in your pew Bibles. It says this, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. I just want to ask you today, is that true? Is it mostly true? Is it sometimes true? If it's true, why should I worry? Why should I fret about my life? If it is true that God is directing my steps, I can be content that life as it is coming to me right now, as it is unfolding right now, is doing so for my benefit and ultimately for his glory. I don't have to be anxious uh, and obsessed over whether or not God is with me or whether God cares about me. The fact of my life might under the facts of my life might understandably cause fear and anxiety. But the most important fact is God says, I will direct your steps and I will delight in every detail of your life. That just doesn't mean when life's going good. Hmm. Will bad things come our way? Yep. We live in a sin-stricken, fallen world. I'm sure bad things have happened to all of us. But here's a suggestion. Think about the bad things in light of all the bad that didn't happen. When it very well could have. Thank God for what didn't happen. Think of, we were driving down to North Liberty last night, going down uh, Interstate 380. Cars and trucks all off in the ditch, everywhere. They are obviously not careful drivers like you. They did not have their hands at 2 and 10. Think about all the accidents in this area. What an inconvenience. What an extra expense that will be for many people. Well, guess what? Could have been worse. So far as I know, almost everybody walked away from those accidents. Thank God. Overwhelmingly, people survived. It's up to us to see God's goodness. As Marilyn said, not in spite of the facts, but to see his goodness as one of the facts. In fact, the most important fact of all facts. Instead of interpreting God through our circumstances, maybe we can inter interpret our circumstances through the goodness of God. You want to give that a try? That's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Paul did just that. He said, what happened to me? All of these terrible things which happened to me. Elsewhere, he listed it in his credentials. I've been beaten. I have been left to die. I have been shipwrecked. He didn't deny any of that, but he acknowledged that all of it served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't control it all the things that happen to you but you can control how you frame it life isn't always going to be easy but if it's lived for the glory of God it's the best life we could possibly live in Philippians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 this is on page 985 in your pew bible Paul writes this, I want to know Christ. How many of you want to know Christ? 
and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. How many of you want to experience the mighty power of God that raised him from the dead? I want to suffer with him sharing in his death. How many of you want to suffer? How many of you want to share in his death? few hollers but not as many as before but here's what Paul says so that in one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection in my case far from it but Paul goes on to say, but I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. And friends, that's through the good circumstances and not so good circumstances. No, dear brothers, I have not, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race, and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Is that your aim? Is that your aim? Can I encourage you today as we, as we close? Brent, if you and team will come today. How many of you have thought about your life in light of this, that I'm going to focus on this one thing. How many of you are living your life today forgetting what's in the past and looking forward to what's ahead? Or are you like me sometimes? I, I have a tendency to look to the past and forget what lies ahead or to become blinded to what lies ahead because I'm so focused on what has happened. Friends, what happened yesterday can never be undone. It's over. Doesn't mean that there won't be ripple effects. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. But you can't undo it. You can't undo a single day. All that God asks us is when we are confronted with his word, what am I going to do about it now? Not what should I have done about it yesterday? What can I do about it next week? What am I going to do about it today? Can today be the first day of your reframing of how you are looking at your life in this world? Can today be the first day that you decide to consider all the facts? All the facts, including... God said, God promised, and God will direct our paths. Can, can you consider that today? Can you make a determination in your heart that I choose to think about my life in that way? To think about it rightly, considering all of the facts. Let's pray. God, as we come to a close today, we thank you, first of all, for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We thank you for the hope that we have, Lord, and help us, Lord, to readjust and reframe our mental framework such that that fact that Jesus is coming again, that Jesus has a future and a hope for us that we can look at all of life through that lens and through that filter today Lord and God make a fundamental change in the framework of our mind that it's not just something we do for an hour or so on a Sunday or for a week but Lord that it'll be a fundamental change in our very nature change our minds Lord change our minds because our minds need changed. We need to see and understand you, Lord, as fully as we possibly can. But help us to see everything through the light and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This life is full of bumps and 
not a few bruises from time to time. But God, we are still here today. We are still here today. And who knows, Lord, but that our testimony of what you have brought us through would be an occasion to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to let others know that there's a God who loves them too and a God who can bring them through even the toughest of trials. Jesus, you suffered so that you would understand. Others who have gone before us, Lord, who have suffered so that the furtherance of the gospel could continue, who have given their lives as martyrs so that we here today can hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and help us to respond to the moving of your spirit, Lord, in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.